in the kitchen. They're having their argument. And this freaking light is coming in the window. <laughs> I couldn't. I kept yeah. noticing it after talking about it last week. Uh, let me hit you with a with a vocabulary term: numinous. I felt like the light was numinous. Um, it was it was evoking a divinity, um, and I, I kept thinking how these scenes like are being you know the light of the Lord is like shining in yet it's through shutters and it's blocked and right so is that like him he's watching and doesn't agree with some of the things that are happening within there I don't know man friends to episode 199 of the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie i'm james and i'm luke and this week we discuss the second half of bruce miller's 2017 series the handmaid's tale i'm sure you heard the emphasis on the 199 in that intro we're coming up on our 200th episode and i just cannot believe it um i think at the top here we should just thank everyone for listening uh, anywhere along the journey, if you've checked it out, uh, thank you. And uh, we're so excited to see what 200 more might bring. Absolutely. And speaking of that, if uh, you haven't had a chance to write in yet, we've gotten some great feedback. Uh, we asked in the last couple episodes for people to, to write in and let, share like a, a favorite episode or a favorite moment from the podcast. And if they wanted to, they could talk about where where their lives have gone since they started listening but that's optional. If you don't want to do that, that's totally cool. I get it. Um, but yeah, we'd love to just like hear what your favorite episode is or your favorite moment on the on the show. Um, write those into us. We, we'd love to get a few more and we'll read them on the episode uh, next week. Next week. Can't believe it's 200. But this week we are covering The Handmaid's Tale, the second half of the series. Right. Um, we've now wrapped up the seri- the this first season. So mm-hmm. It's going to be really interesting to dig into some of these nuances we couldn't fully dig into maybe last week. Right. I, I There were so many things that I was talking about that I was like, James knew all along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What was your what was your initial reaction to it? Did this did the show hold up? I know you really liked the first half. Did it continue on that same path? Did it did you like it more maybe? So the second half of this show diverged from the book a lot more significantly than I think the first half does. Like there were changes, sure, but there was big expansions of material here in the second half. A lot of stuff that with especially some of the side characters that we just didn't get in the book. And then even with our, our main character, June, uh, uh, quite a bit more. Um, I think the show continues to be a beautiful show. It is expertly crafted, excellent uh, actors and giving us just stellar performances. So, I mean, what's what's not to like there, right? Like it's it's a very engaging, entertaining show. Um, it's dealing with subject matter that is timely, that is, you know, unfortunately always going to be timely as long as uh, sort of far right repressive politics are a sort of force to contend with in our country and around the world. And that's exactly what's going on in this show that just turned up to a few notches, maybe past what we see in real life. Unfortunately, not as many as you, you might wish for. Um, and all of that comes together to make a really engaging, um, 
harrowing at times, horrific uh, watching experience. And, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm very excited for season two. Um, but yeah, there's a lot to talk about here in these five episodes and I'm, I'm definitely interested in to, to get into it with you. Yeah. Generally, would you say that like the, the changes and the things that were added did like, did you, did you lean into the, I like the changes or did you lean into the, it started to bog things down for me? The general direction of the show is different than the book. I can feel it building out into a larger world where it's going to tell bigger stories in a further season. Um, I'm not sure they knew they were going to get a season two here, but it felt like they were directly leaving the door open for that possibility and um, giving themselves plenty of space to play in in a multiple season format show. And um, I can't blame them for doing that. It does change the story in a pretty significant way. And I enjoy it. You know, it's... It's not the only way to tell the story. I, I I go back to what you said last week. Like a, there could be a stellar mini series, limited run, six episodes, eight episodes, something like that, um, version of this story that is a lot more faithful to the book. Um, and maybe if you're a book purist, would would appeal to you even more. Um, I think that would probably be excellent. But the show doing what it is doing, I think, is still good. Now, all of that is said with the caveat of. I haven't seen the later seasons. I have heard some rumblings from some people who maybe feel like the show has lost its way somewhat. Um, it's difficult for me to say I haven't seen them. Clearly, they're going well beyond the material of the book. So whenever that happens, there's a chance that the new direction will feel at odds with the original source material. And if that's what goes on, I totally get it. But I I don't have that experience. So right. just be, be aware. Only seen the first season. I do love that you're like tr- engaging with like tiny breadcrumbs of information that maybe yeah. people feel a certain way and like yeah. who knows it, like what you're at. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Do I, would I even agree with them if I'd see? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What was your experience like watching this first season now that you've seen the whole thing in its entirety? I know you've seen, I think, up to the most recent season, right? Right. So coming all the way back to the beginning, is it is it kind of like Game of Thrones, like coming back and watching season one of Game of Thrones and, and reliving some of the initial things that, that made you fall in love with it? It really kind of is. Like, I, I think that my viewings are always enhanced by having read the source material and understanding yeah. maybe some of the nuances even more than what you can get. And sort of just like, because I was just watching it as a casual viewer when I watched, watched the first season. I was watching week to week, but it wasn't like... I wasn't digging into every little detail, but as you get those details from the source material, you can then bring that knowledge to the next time you view it. And I really did this time. I felt like I was able to get more of the pinpoint on what the story was trying to say. And you mentioned how like so much has changed and, you know, a miniseries would be an interesting exercise. But at the same time, the way that this season ends is kind of the same way as the book in the fact that it's like this ambiguous ending where like there's greater threats that are going on, but this is this one experience from this one person for a slice of their time in this. So we don't know where it ends up. We don't know where it's going. Like if if there was a situation, like if they changed it and at the end of the first season, she just gets away and she's in Canada with her family and everything's great. And like they, they topple Gilead or something, that would be completely different. But they sort of, if it did get canceled and there was only this one season, I think it would have been like a really serviceable adaptation with yeah. obviously notable changes. So I think the thumb is pressed on the scale on uh, the side of she gets away or she's she's 
for different reasons we'll talk about. Maybe when we get to the final episode, we should save some of this discussion. But I, I generally agree with you. It was set up in a way to where if they had been canceled or something, like this first season would hold up as, a, as an adaptation. It ends basically in the same place as the book with uh, some ver- variations, which we can talk about when we get to that episode. Yeah, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Right, yeah. Uh, there is a couple things that we didn't address last week that I feel like we can loop back to. Um, one of them being, I wanted to mention that in 2019, The Handmaid's Tale was ranked 25th on the Guardian's list of the 100 best TV shows of the 21st century. Wow. So pretty, I mean, like, you know, make of that what you will. It's just a list on a website. But it's that's, a list that's, someone that's, made, but <laughs> it's The Guardian. I guess that's a fairly respected yeah, it's cool yeah. to think that people people who are writing articles like this f- feel that it's that significant. And I would I would say it probably is in the top twenty five. Yeah. Like you know, it's it's fantastic. I, I think mean, it's, it's an Emmy winner. Like I think it's deserved. Definitely. Um, another thing that we didn't talk about is Elizabeth Moss is a, also a producer on this show. So to have her sort of like take ownership of the show in that way as well, I think is very cool. And I think she, as time goes on, she starts to direct episodes as well and really, oh, really? starts to make it her own in a lot of ways. And that brings me to a subject that we didn't even touch on last week, which is mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moss is a Scientologist. Um, right. We all know of the of the scandals that have come from Scientology, I feel like. Um, but I, I mean, just like I, I looked into it a little bit. I've never I hadn't up to this point. I always felt like it was weird because Elizabeth Moss is, is portraying a character that's being suppressed by like um, a religious, very oppressive force. And then like to think of what Scientology can be viewed as and is viewed as most of the time. Um, it, it I don't know. It's, you know, people I, I read a quote from Elizabeth Moss and she talks about how Basically, the Daily Beast asked her to clarify her thoughts on sexuality because of Scientology being sort of having a stance against homosexuality. And this is the quote that she gave. And I think she's tiptoeing around things, obviously, a little bit. But tell me what you think. Quote, it's a lot to get into and unpack that I can't do here, she explained. But that is not my bag. I am obviously a huge feminist and huge supporter of the LGBTQ community. I believe so strongly I can't even tell you and people being able to do what they want to do, to love who they want to love, to be the person they want to be, whoever that is. To me, it's a huge reason why I love doing the show. That's all I can say. I can't speak to what other people believe. I can't speak to what other people's experiences have been. That's where I stand. And the only place I can speak from is my own. Yeah. Um, and whenever I look, I, I'm happy to hear her say those things, but I'm always wondering because it feels like there are people who are in Scientology are always tiptoeing. I always wonder, is it this threat that if they step out of line, some like tragedy will befall them or they'll, they'll be canceled. They'll be blacklisted in, in the industry and that sort of thing. So I, I don't know. I, there's a lot going on there and I, I want to get your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's a tough subject, you know? Um, Scientology is not a religion. I know a ton about, I know a little bit. I've researched some stuff. I listened to some podcasts that talked about it. Um, I know that it has, been accused of a lot of wrongdoing over the years. Um, it is a highly litigious organization that often goes after critics online. Um, well, has even I, I saw that they were like petitioning to have search results on Google remove any like criticism from top search results when you, when you like Google Scientology. So they're incredibly controlling of their reputation, which is a big red flag t- for me. And when you look into it, there's a lot of cultish behavior. Um, You see pressure for members to 
separate themselves from anybody in their social circles and family who might be critical of the church. Um, there's a lot of pressure to sort of conform to the in-group. And, uh, you know, reports are coming out that it is sort of abusive and or exploitative of its members, right? Like, whether for financial gain for somebody or for, for who knows what. Um, that also is all being said with the veil of secrecy that sort of surrounds it, right? Like, if you're not in it, it's really hard to know exactly what's going on. You get these stories from people who have left the church, but they're widely condemned by the people who are in the church, and they're called liars. I tend to believe the people who've left because they don't have a lot of good reasons to lie about this sort of stuff, um, and you see certain trends start to crop up. Now, all that being said... The same argument could be leveled at many different religions. Um, there is different groups within Christianity. There's, you know, I mean, it's all over the place. There's all kinds of toxic behavior that goes on, abuse that goes on, um, pressure to conform. All that, all that same stuff I just talked about is present in many different religions. It's one of the reasons I'm agnostic and I don't subscribe to any particular religion, but many people do. And I think a lot of people's experience with their religion is that the people they know and interact with are positive influences in their life and help give them meaning that they're looking for. And I'm sure in Elizabeth Moss's situation, I'm not sure, I guess, I, I, I want to grant her the benefit of the doubt and say that she's probably interacting with people within the organization that she feels very positive about. And it, it, it's providing something for her that she wants. And... You know, like she said in that quote, her experience has been a good one. Now, she is also a celebrity face of Scientology, which means yeah. she's going to be isolated from anything negative because she is a huge recruitment tool for the organization. This, this is something that they're famous for doing, right? With Tom Cruise and other other high-profile celebrities. Will Smith, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's even like in their doctrine is about like using celebrity to further the word of Scientology and all this stuff. Well, and that's why um, you hear a lot of like people in LA and, and honestly anywhere with, with creatives and specifically actors, um, yeah. they get sucked in because it's like oh, yeah. this, like well, the entertainment industry in particular is one that Scientology is very interested in. Right. Um, and using that to, to spread their, um, spread the word of Scientology, I guess. Um, so again, I don't know a ton about it, but I do know a little, and it's enough for me to say that even if I disagree with an organization that someone belongs to, um, it doesn't mean that I can't enjoy the work that person does, especially given the circumstance of, like, we don't know what Elizabeth Moss's journey is, and we don't know what it will be. Um, we don't know if she'll always be a member of the church. Maybe she will, but we don't know that. Um, right. That's the other thing is like you, you, there are people who get into it early. Yeah. They're indoctrinated well, and then like they anything. get to the, yeah. but then they get to this point of celebrity and they get to this, this status that they were looking for from this organization. And then they feel like, like I said, they can't leave because yeah. of implications, because of like uh, some of the stories that come out, you know, like people yeah. are, are like, I, I, yeah, yeah, all kinds of stuff that seems really sketchy and like, I don't know. I just, I wouldn't want to be associated with it personally, and like yeah. it's just one of those things that I've heard plenty of stories. I've seen video of people try to go speak to people at the Scientology compounds and things like that, and they're just like completely waved away. Not a lot. It's like this most, and and then there's stories of people being like, I don't know, just like kept in these like 
air kept in these buildings for like days on end and stuff they can't yeah. leave and i don't know scary stuff because it is cult like behavior there's this veil of secrecy around it around it and it's happening it's it's, it's a modern organization that's happening right now um but again it's also like there are plenty of other organizations doing shady shit in america so yeah. they're not alone um I, I guess I'll give this this small anecdote too, just because it it is it, it makes me think of it. So Scientology, the Church of Scientology, also runs a contest called the Writers of the Future contest, and this is a pretty well known contest in the sci-fi fantasy writing community. Um, L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer who the you know founder of Scientology, and it is literally called L. Ron Hubbard's, you know, Writers of the Future or something like that. It's, the, it's branded that way. Um, they do say that the there is the supposed firewall that separates the church from the contest. And that if you are a winner of the contest, you won't be approached to join the church. They do this big ceremony where they bring in the winners and they award the cash prizes. Um, but it's kind of wrapped in some of the trappings of Scientology, right? And... There's an association, and I didn't know all of this initially, and I did submit uh, short fiction to it a few times. I ended up getting a silver honorable mention for a, for a story, um, which is like the one step away from being a, a, a finalist. But I have chosen to not send any more material to them. Um, basically around, I forget what year it was, but a lot of former winners started coming out on different forums in the, in the writing community and sharing their experiences and come to find out that firewall was not as strong as you might think. And there was some pressure. If you and think that you're not on a list after winning something like that, like, you know. Yeah, people getting approached. Maybe there was people within the organization who were behaving in ways that felt inappropriate. Um I, I don't I can't recall all the specific details, but it was enough for me to go. I don't want to be associated with this. I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt at first. There's not a lot of paying opportunities in the short fiction space. Um, I want a writers of the future type uh, contest to exist. I think it's it's a cool idea, right? To to showcase new writers and to yeah. have a decent cash prize. That's not something you th there's a lot of. Um, but it's a shame because it, as far as I know, this is the only one like it. Um, I don't blame anyone if they still submit to him. You know what I mean? Like, you can take their money. There's been people who've who've gotten first prize and like used their speech at the at the event to like shit on Scientology. Like, you know, either directly or indirectly. Like, you can do what you're gonna do with it. Um, and I and I can't blame you if you if you want to go after that money. You know, I'm not gonna blame you. But personally, I no longer submit to them. So that that's kind of where I'm at with it in general. I also wouldn't submit to a like overtly christian organization right like if its whole publication was wrapped in being christian i wouldn't want to be associated with that either right. so that's just how i am with most organized religion because i do tend to find it to be exploitative or has the potential to be yeah that makes me think about the maybe the role that scientology has for elizabeth moss at this point too it's like who knows if this if this show isn't a commentary on some of that stuff because I don't know that, that that you can't separate the two. Like when I think about the show and I'm watching it and if I if it pops in my head that she's a Scientologist, I'm like, man, like this organization could be dealing, you know, doing some of this crazy shit. And like just the association yeah. is there. And I'm sure it's different enough to where she can separate some of it because it's like they're not it's not like wrapped in the same Christianity 
right. you know, stuff that, that the show tends to be. Um, and, and, and again, I don't know exactly what goes on behind closed doors because you have to be in those circles and, you know, uh, clearly I'm not. But like, yeah. um, I, I, I guess I do think of it when I watch her performance a little bit, but um, I still am very impressed and I'm able to enjoy it and I'm able to enjoy her work. Um, it, it, it's 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 holding the individual separate from the organization. Um, now, if she, you know, if something comes out about her specifically being responsible for some abuses and you know what I mean? Illegal, anything like that were to come out, hold her res- responsible but for right. now. I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's one of those situations where it's like separate the art from the artist and you know, like people, people, I, I know this isn't, this isn't the most drastic case of needing to do that, but I mean, like I feel the same way when I watch it, I feel like I'm able to just like enjoy her performance and enjoy the show and give her the benefit of the doubt. But it is interesting to think about yeah. the association that's there and the words that are coming out of her mouth, right? Like she's like, I'm a feminist. I support these rights. You know what I mean? So she's saying the right things. Maybe that's at odds with people in the organization. Cause there are people who, who subscribe to religions and are have beliefs that are at odds with the religion you know so this can happen and and who knows what that'll lead to down the road tough to say yeah well do you have any other general things you'd like to talk about or should we jump into the plots let's jump into the plot we spent a lot of time talking about scientology so yeah hopefully people we're, uh, we're definitely flagged on a list at this point as well <laughs> yeah we'll probably be uh excluded from google search results i don't know <laughs> <laughs> already are <laughs> Episode six is called A Woman's Place. When Mexican trade delegates visit the Waterford's home to evaluate the effects of the Gilead cultural movement, June is asked about her experience. She lies, saying that she is happy. The handmaids are taken to a function to demonstrate Gilead's success, illustrated by a parade of commander's children to whom the handmaidens have given birth. The next day, June privately tells Mexico's ambassador the truth about Gilead and asks for her help, but the ambassador is unable to do anything. However, June is told by the ambassador's assistant that Luke is alive and a message can be sent to him. A flashback details Serena and Fred's life at the beginnings of the Gilead movement, when Serena was a conservative cultural activist with passion and intelligence equal to her husband's. It is revealed that she wrote a book about her beliefs titled A Woman's Place. The Waterfords are shown to have been involved with the movement since the beginning, and Fred later finds out that the movement will attack the U.S. government. After the takeover, Serena is completely shut out and accepts her role in the totalitarian society she helped create. A copy of her book is seen being thrown out in the trash. Yeah, what a what a powerful episode. I mean, I'm going to say the same thing, I think, for a lot of these these ones. Um, just you talking about it kind of gets me excited because this was a good one. And, and it includes a lot of material that isn't present in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Some of it is. Some of it's hinted at. You know, some of it's sort of extrapolations. But... A lot of good stuff here. No, you know, the delegation coming to the home, um, her interaction with this ambassador, the question of are you happy and the look on, you know, June's face while she's struggling to say that she is and lie. Yeah. Um, Some of the time I find myself like it's stretching believability that these people wouldn't pick up on the facial like reactions yeah. that they're giving sometimes. You're but like, you have to remember that the camera is real fucking close. <laughs> Whereas like in real life, you're standing across a room. So maybe the benefit of the doubt is maybe it's sometimes harder to tell. But I found myself saying the same thing. Like, don't you can't you look at her face and tell that she's like 
everything about her face is like i fucking hate it here it's also <laughs> one of those things where it's like if you ask somebody if they're happy and then they pause for like 30 seconds of somber <laughs> silence like i don't know that they're they're gonna like i don't know if you can believe them when they say they're happy but i i will say that the show kind of addresses that because the ambassador even says like i don't know that she was fully fooled as much as she wanted to be like it seems like she wants to believe that you know she's happy or or at least okay with her place maybe she doesn't know the full extent of the horror but um i don't know like she kind of says i can't help you later on when when the the full truth is revealed and um it ends up being someone in her entourage that is able to help a little more i mean they were there to basically start trade of handmaids as well so it's like yeah like you said she kind of wanted to to believe it at some point and be like oh thank you for providing the service to save all these countries and that speaks to to some real world shit right like um i i read that afghanistan in particular was one of the societies that margaret atwood looked at a lot um and we know that especially under like taliban rule it's incredibly repressive and uh kind of similar to Gilead in some ways. And I do think there is a look the other way, turn a blind eye mentality in a lot of these countries looking to do business with people in the Middle East in particular, like countries in the Middle East that that maybe have human rights violations and stuff like that going on. Um, I know I'm getting into sort of real world politics. I'm not trying to, to infuse the show. Like, but like this show deals with this stuff, right? And, I mean, that's the commentary she was making. Right, right. Some and, of it, yeah. And my my point being that, like, when your interests align, you can just look for an excuse to look the other way. Oh, oh this is what they, they're choosing this. This is their culture. And some of that can be true in some situations. I'm not trying to say it isn't, but sometimes it's also not true. And it's something that someone has to say because of reprisals, because of violence and threat. And, you know, like, they literally lose their lives if they speak out. So um, in situations like that, how can you ever trust what anybody says to you? There's a part that's additional from the book. It's added in the show. And it's this flashback we get of Serena and Fred before the, the basically the Gilead uh, wall falls down, goes up, I guess. And um, it's really interesting because you can start to see like, even within the relationship, there's like a, there's like a patriarchal dynamic, but not like it is, obviously in Gilead um and like she's like you know she's she's like helping him in his career and it's like that's what they're focusing on that's very important and so like their dynamic was already structured like that whereas like you know you can see in June and and Luke's dynamic that that seems to be more even they seem to be sort of on a more oh, even yeah. playing field very different and and um but even so it was interesting to see them like on a date she has a lot more agency she's telling him what to do and, yeah. and like to see that was so powerful to, to to for Serena's character later on in the season as well her character's fascinating and it is i think a further exploration of the character that exists in the book um she is this sort of uh, personality almost a celebrity in the book um somewhat the same in the show right um she's written this book and she clearly is sort of a conservative, a woman's place, you know, like a name like that for a book is very right. provocative, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, domestic feminism, I believe, is what the uh, the ambassador called it. And um, you're like, mm, what does that mean? And, and you know, <laughs> you just know that how that book was was probably written, right? Like, in theory, you can kind of imagine it. And 
it, it I don't know, it, it made me really intrigued, and but also like, I guess I, I lost some sympathy for her um, over the course of finding this out. I, I maintained some, but mm-hmm. a lot of it was lost because it's like she worked so hard to build a prison for herself. And she works so hard to create a society where she is stripped of all power. And then she's going to like dare to have the gall to be like frustrated and depressed in the society that she helped make. Like it's, it's like, come on. It's like, Oh, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own action, it's hard to feel too sorry for her. And it seems like Serena and Fred along the way, didn't really realize the beast that they were creating and it starts to obviously come back to bite them in ways that Serena kind of should have seen coming, but they were doing, they were so busy focusing on trying to make the world better and thinking that like their specific version of the world being that way would help. And like, I think you can argue that like, it literally doesn't help. It probably does the opposite. Like, Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You know what I mean? Fertility rates are, are, are down. And I don't think that what they're doing is actually helping. No, um, absolutely not. And you're right because both of them are sort of shown as being perpetrators of this movement, yet definitely didn't fully appreciate exactly what they were unleashing, right? And it's interesting to see the divergence of the two roles because of the society they create. They are fairly equal in status within their relationship, it seems to me. And then she so she realizes how she is going to be shut out. Um, and she is uh, uh, excluded. She's no lo- she's not allowed to give her. She had some sort of speech she was going to give. It seemed like she had notes for. She's not allowed to do it. Yeah, one of the most poignant moments was when they were like, "You're not even one of the one of the other wives says like you're not even allowed to read your own book. Like, how does yeah. that feel? Or maybe that was the ambassador that said that." Yeah, absolutely. Like, how does it feel not to be able to read your own book? Yeah. And she's like, sacrifices must be made or something. And we can just tell that, like, that's what she tells herself. But it seems to me like she's lying to herself. I'm really curious to see where this character goes in in following seasons, because I think there's a lot of interesting potential there. Um, And it's a cautionary tale, right? Like, think about who benefits, because, you know, even though they both think they're doing this thing for God and for whatever, like, She's the one who gets subjugated. He's the one who gets elevated. And so she's the one who's now suffering while he's sort of enjoying the fruits of, you know, everything that's gone on in his now status. Yeah. Like you said, it's a cautionary tale. Don't take up arms for a cause in such like and be like one one minded about it. Like you have to be able to see different perspectives on it and stuff. And clearly she was just like this is the way and there's no other i don't know yeah it, it obviously and the one of the funniest parts to me is that like fred and you can see with all of the the high-ranking gilead officials basically when they go off to to uh jezebel's and everything like this is their like they're they've all realized long ago that it's just a facade and they've created this facade well, the hypocrisy is fully exposed as we continue on in the show but um Another thing in this episode that happens is uh, Serena Joy comes into uh, June's room and I think they're in the room and they have a conversation and she says, uh, you can leave or something like that. And then there's a pause and then she closes this mirror and in the mirror you see June is still standing there, hasn't moved. And I really think with their physicality, um, these little moments, they're really trying to show 
the shifting power dynamics in this relationship. And yeah. this is June pushing back, right? And she says something about um, red is my color, right? Like it, she says something like that, right? Like, um, and it's referencing that red outfit and um, it, it's sort of claiming it in a way. I also wanted to shout out, we got a comment, I think from Amanda, one of our listeners on Instagram. Sorry if that wasn't who left the comment, but, um, and she said that, Red, in particular, could be a reference to it's sort of the color of harlots and, you know, women that are considered, you know, uh, unsavory or or loose women, right? Like the scarlet letter, things like that. And so th- that red could be literally like sex. And that red represents that, right? Which totally makes sense. Like the lady in a red dress and all that stuff that, you know, you think about the Matrix, right? Um, so it totally makes sense. And I think that is another thing that's going on with these handmade outfits for sure. Yeah, I can totally see that. So episode seven is called The Other Side. This episode chronicles Luke's story after he was separated from June and Hannah. Luke is shot and injured, but escapes when the ambulance crashes. He passes out from his wounds and is rescued by a resistance group traveling to Canada with many survivors, including Aaron, a mute escaped handmaid, and Zoe, the daughter of a U.S. Army soldier. Initially reluctant, Luke joins them after Zoe shows him that Gilead authorities hanged people from the rafters of their church for resisting. As they board a boat, Gilead guards kill several members of the group, but Luke and Aaron manage to survive. A further flashback shows Luke, June, and Hannah before they were separated. June and Luke are helped by Mr. Whitford, a man who knew June's mother. He leaves them at a secluded cabin in the woods while he arranges documentation for them to escape to Canada. However, he is caught and hanged, and a local hunter attempts to help them instead. Three years later, in the present, Luke and Aaron live safely in Little America, based in Toronto. While in the main administrative office, Luke receives the letter from June, which reads, I love you so much, save Hannah. Upon understanding that June is probably alive, Luke gets emotional. Yeah. Uh, Before we talk about this episode, I just want to touch on one final scene from the previous one before we move on. Uh, the the parading of the handmaid's children out at this at this big gathering was such a powerful moment, and the the complete change in demeanor and expression of all these handmaids who were sort of enjoying being at this at this event, um, somewhat somewhat enjoying mm-hmm. it, um, and then yeah, just the it's like the worst thing you could do, and I don't know, I I, I thought that was a beautifully done. Um, moment that just just really hit all the right emotional beats um yeah and it's a reminder of the past and the freedom yeah. and, and all that and what's been taken from them right like it's it's right. it's almost it's like a form of torture to just like have them have to sit there and the way that they leverage the yeah specifically june's child too yeah. it's fucking wild yeah okay so yeah episode seven i wanted to ask you uh you were mentioning that uh there's a bunch of women directors is this one one of the ones directed by a man? No, it's not. It's not. Okay, no. interesting. They flipped the script on me. I thought maybe it was because this is like completely Luke focused, right? Like it is it's the biggest departure from any other episode in the sense that it's this sort of complete side story of what goes on with Luke. And I enjoyed it. Um, definitely not in the book, um, but that's okay for me. Like I, I, I'm fine with that. I enjoyed this episode. Um, it is a little bit, maybe expected in some ways um mm-hmm. like you kind of could fill in 
this storyline if you, if you were asked to like guess at what happened um this might be what you come up with but there's enough there's enough surprise in here i, I like i like widening the lens on the world and seeing more of it and we're definitely doing that here um so there's a lot to like here um i there's a particular shot early on that i wrote down i thought was pretty amazing and that was the uh ambulance flip scene where the camera is like locked in place on him and the stretcher and every there's like people and just debris like flipping all around as the ambulance spirals and i was like how did they like it seems dangerous it looks like he's really in the scene like i i I don't know i'm very curious how they would have pulled that one off but um you know props to them it was a really good looking scene probably a rig of some kind to like actually like the camera is stationary and they rotate like the ambulance around it or something like that yeah some of that stuff might have been digital. Some of the debris, maybe, maybe some, maybe it's filmed in slow motion, but then sped up. Like, isn't there like a clocking thing you can do to like film things at different speeds and then make it seem faster than it really was shot at and stuff like that? Kind of, yeah, yeah. Frame rates and that, yeah. That's so maybe there was some some playing with that, like make it because well, it was in slow motion, but maybe it was like originally kind of done slowly. I don't know. Just right. to keep it safe, right? Because they had to do it in some way that wasn't super dangerous, <laughs> right? And then some of it also could have just been like augmented, like CG stuff. Yeah. Well, and if they did, like I didn't spot it at least in that first first past, and that's all that really matters, right? Like fool you that first time, right. and I thought it looked good. And then, um, and I like the performance out of Luke here. I mean, this is this is all good stuff. And um, he, him hooking up with this group, right, was fascinating. We get um, I don't know. It's like a little, doesn't it feel like a Walking Dead episode? To it you a little it bit? does. Like a very post. This is like what you're used to in like a post apocalypse man against society situation like and that's why i said like this felt more familiar um we've seen this kind of story play out um but it's interesting because he doesn't actually go back for her he ends up escaping um Mm -hmm. and then uh yeah the moment where the the woman i forget what her name was you said it in the in the in the uh summary but the main woman he's been interacting with aaron or zoe zoe i believe zoe yeah when she gets shot, I was shocked. I, I shouldn't have been. I have to, in, in retrospect, like, okay, that makes sense. But, like, in that moment, I was shocked, right? And it's this tragic moment where she gets gunned down. And Yeah, and speaking of, like, affecting moments, that church scene when they walk in and all those people, that was gruesome. His reaction is classic, right? Like, yeah. You see it on his face before it's revealed what he's looking at, which I think is always right. a powerful uh, thing to do. And then, yeah, yeah, you only see it for a second, but I, I had to pause it. I was like, I went back and paused it because I wanted to read. And there's like all these like, weird things written on the wall. And it's a very bizarre scene, um, like tableau that he views. Very dark. Um, and that, actually, we didn't even talk about the washing of the wall last episode with like washing blood off the wall. There's a lot of these like just really powerful moments. Um, and yeah, they're very heavy handed, but effective. We also get the flashback of June and how it all went down, like June and Luke and Hannah at this like cabin. Well, we're getting more information throughout, right? Like, yeah, they go to this cabin. Um, Clearly like the happy one of the happiest moments in his life. He keeps he keeps we were talking about motivated, um, having motivated flashbacks last episode. And we get him here, but it's different because he is sort of in this like semi um delusional state he's clearly been wounded he seems to be in and out of consciousness and then we're so we're getting more like dreamlike memories it seems like to me um and so in some sense it's less motivated but it's more just like he's thinking of the good times and then that leads him to think about what happened to end the good times but um 
I do like the misdirect with the hunter, right? Like where we think the hunter is always like, oh, clearly he's, you know, a member of the Gilead or whatever. But then he ends up not being and he's the one who reveals that the other guy got got strung up by a, from a light pole or something and just horrific town, and yeah. tells them, that, you know, that they they know they're looking for the car and they need to leave. So, yeah, I liked I liked all of that. Very good stuff. Yeah. Uh, I have to talk about the the letter that June writes because we don't know what she writes at first. She's like yeah. she's told by this delegates like assistant yeah. that like he she needs to write something very quickly. And we cut away from that and go back to some other story. I think some of Luke's stuff. And then when we finally get it revealed is when he's in the office, which again, I really like seeing Canada in present day where like they have like a also like just seeing them be like, here's your universal health care here's your like all the things that they're just like immediately being like this is what we do as a society yeah. and like we're taking care of our own yeah we get more the, of that the, late, later on which i definitely want to talk about yeah and um so he goes into the office and he's like so excited he has all this like materials and he's he's got all these theories of where she's at and like what to do speaking with this with like this authority from the from the canadian government His daughter and specifically then, he's looking for right yeah. and then he gets the letter and the, what she wrote was so kick ass because like I don't like I think it was basically the perfect thing to write, right? Um, because it's so triumphant, and it's like I love you, save Hannah. Yeah, is like it's just the coolest thing. Like I just and, and like his his reaction is so genuine too. I love the way he reacts to it, and he's like, "Can I have a moment?" She clears the room, and yeah, it's just powerful stuff. Yeah, good stuff, and yeah, I mean, you only have a, a second to write something. It's believable that this is the kind of thing you would scrawl. So. Well done all around. Episode eight is called Jezebel's. Commander Waterford gives June makeup and a dress and takes her out for the night. Nick drives them to Boston to an underground brothel where sex workers known as Jezebel's work. June spots Moira and they briefly reunite. Nick trades drugs and pregnancy tests for alcohol with Beth, one of the brothel's Martha's. June goes to see Moira again and she explains to June how Quakers tried to help her escape but were caught. Moira had the choice of being sent either to the colonies or one of the brothels. Moira tells June to forget about escaping, but June tells Moira that Luke got out. Flashbacks detail how Nick, struggling with unemployment and a troubled family, got involved with the Sons of Jacob and subsequently the Gilead movement, and how he became an eye after reporting a commander for breaking protocol with his handmaids. The suicide of the previous Offred is shown. In the present, Nick drives Waterford and June home. He ends his relationship with June, which upsets and angers her. The episode closes with June etching the words, you were not alone in the closet wall. Yeah, uh, we, this is the the moment we've all been waiting for. We've read the book. We get Jezebel's um, and, and, you know, very memorable section in the book. And it is so here, too, because it, it fully displays the supreme hypocrisy of those at the top, Right. Um, and of course, I, I think the implication is there is a couple of true believers in the organization there who are at least willing to pretend that they are true believers. Um, but the vast majority of them are doing this kind of stuff on the side. Um, and yeah, I mean, Waterford just gets more and more detestable. He even says, I uh, mean, at we- the beginning of the episode when he's like shaving her and like having her oh, put yeah. makeup on and giving her, it was so disgusting, super creepy. And then she's like, so there's this amazing thing the show does with its score um there's this tone and there's a name for it i don't know the name of it but it's like this descending tone and i'm not sure that they always do this but like the music it's like the pitch is dropping and it's dropping and it's kind of over and over again and 
they put it in these scenes where she's acting happy, right? Like she's acting like, oh, everything is fine. Yet the the score is like, is pulling you down emotionally. And I, it's a really interesting thing that you can do in a movie, right? That you can't do in a book. And, and you can use different tools in your toolbox to do this. Like I will have the character acting happy, portraying happy, saying happy things, but that score alone tells you what's really going on in the scene, right? Um, yeah. So I think it's really cool how they use that. And then um, that's further backed up when Serena Joy gives her music box, which I loved because she plays it. And it's like this hideous sounding discordant tune. Like I thought it was going to be this little beautiful tinkling like thing, but no, it's all like out of tune and harsh sounding. And she talks about how it's a woman trapped in a box. But like, I love that the music carries over because that discordant out of tune sound is also in the score. Um, and, right. and again, it just feels like something's wrong all the time. That's what's really powerful about film, right? Is like you're combining so many, you're combining the writing with the visuals, with the, the auditory yeah. uh, responses as well. And like it, it, you can play with an audience like that. There's subliminal things that filmmakers will do. Yeah. And this isn't that, this yeah, obviously this isn't is that subtle, obvious, but, but yeah, I mean, but it's, it's done for effective reason because it does put you on edge. You feel that in your, in your bones. Absolutely. Another thing I was completely shocked to get, we had a flashback of Nick from before and he's such an interesting character like he's so he's so stoic and it seems like one of his superpowers is his ability to like have a, an excellent poker face like he just doesn't react to anything and he seems like to not have a lot of compunctions about a lot of stuff this version of nick seems a lot more on june's side and the side of mayday at least at the point we get to at the end of the at the end of the season than the Nick does in the book, in my opinion, to where we were talking about it earlier when he tells her to get in the in the van. I trust Nick a lot more in the show than I trust than I trusted Nick in the book. Yeah, definitely. I will say this this Nick flashback. While I understand how he was able to fall in with these sons of a Jacob it doesn't make him any more likable. No, if anything, it makes not. him like less likable. It explains it. Like, he seems like he was just like desperate for a job, and like he, he seems like a character who didn't care, and right. um, he benefits from being a man. So he isn't directly affected in the same way that all these women are, right? And he seems like he's one of these young guys who gets caught up in these extremist organizations. Just because it gives them something to do, like it give it, it gives them purpose, it gives them a job, it gives them a sense of community that they don't have, and they're they're sort of missing in their lives. And he got swept up in it, despite not really being a true believer. It's more just like I don't really care. It seems like he he is. I don't know. I mean, we don't know enough about him to know why he is the way he is. Yeah. But it seems like he was sort of morally neutral. And if you're neutral then you're you're going to align with the oppressor, right? Like that's something that you see time and again, um, because if you're not willing to actively stand against it, you're ultimately supporting it. Um, and he does so here. Like he, he, he might tell himself, oh, I'm just being a driver or whatever, but he is still supporting it in a way and benefiting it in a way, even though he's not a commander himself or anything. He's hearing the conversations that lead to the society eventually. So like he's pretty close to and it. You see him have a little bit of a reaction of like, oh, I don't know about this, but like I'm too right. far in now. I just have to roll with it. It's really interesting because it makes me think of like 
you know, pe- like we were, you were just saying, like people without a purpose, people without a people to to like a culture and like a, a group of people to to identify with, get pulled into something like this, and then, but often you see it become their cause eventually exactly. because they feel like they now have ownership in it, and like the, the fact that he couldn't get a job and this is a job that he has now, yep. he's like, well, I owe it to this job because it's paying me, and I couldn't get a job anywhere else, so this is my people now. It makes me think of like kids who get pulled into the alt right through like YouTube and shit, like right. like. You know what I mean? It's just somewhere that they can belong and say crazy stuff. And then I mean, these are all direct comparisons being made, right? Like going back to Margaret Atwood's original novel up to the the point here. It's like there's a reason we're getting so political. It's in it's in what we're watching. It's in the text. Um, And it's speaking about extremism and how, you know, people get recruited to it. Um, Absolutely. But it's also interesting to say that, like, you know, Nick, although he's within this organization, it seems like he can be he can be rede- redeemed right in some way um and that's kind of what his story is about and maybe finding a way to find redemption for himself yeah so we also got moira again yeah so moira moira again at, at, at jezebel's jezebel's itself was uh quite a spectacle and it is it is all the more shocking to see because we know how much everything that's happening here was said to be the like sin of society everything that you know gilead was against and yet you're seeing it all on display here just restricted and controlled and dominated by a very select few of commanders yeah. and uh of course of course this is what happens <laughs> gotta give a shout out to margaret atwood's original line being in the show where it was like who are all, june asked like who are all these people and then waterford's like you know they're high senators and they're this and they're that and she's like i meant the women yeah. and it's just such a good moment it's like yep. it's so powerful yeah and it's, it speaks volumes to waterford to june to it's just the society in general oh man i groaned so much when he said uh he said to her we've got quite a collection here <laughs> it's like jesus christ dude oh man and like he's the one especially where i'm like are you not looking at her face <laughs> like can you not tell how she's reacting right. to the shit that you're saying a lot of times too there's a there's a point where he like kind of finally realizes that they're having sex and she's like complete has no reaction yeah. and he like has a reaction and then she like fakes it or yeah whatever. exactly and uh it's like to be that detached is is for waterford is insane yeah so i did have something i wanted to talk about actually um and it's that there were no black characters in the original source novel and um that's because like black people were forcibly resettled into the upper midwest in within the book so the producers of the show made a conscious uh, choice to deviate from that aspect of the book so that they would be able to include black characters and actors in the show Bruce Miller explained that the producers engaged in a huge discussion with Margaret Atwood, and in some ways it is a TV versus book thing, arguing that in a TV show it would be harder than in a book to explain the persistent absence of black characters. He continued, what's the difference between making a TV show about racists and making a racist TV show? Why would we be covering the story of Handmade Offred rather than telling the story of people of color who got sent off to Nebraska? He also justifies it by reporting that the evangelical movement has got has gotten a lot more integrated since the book's publication, and he made the decision that fertility trumped everything. Yeah, that, as to why they so that there's you know uh, minority handmaids. Um, right. This completely makes sense. I think he's right on here's right decision for the show, and it helps a lot of the potential criticisms I was reading out there um, about it. And um, 
I can see what Margaret Atwood was thinking, you know, like they're they're racist and she was trying to include that. But um, I agree with what he's saying about like there's a there is a fine line between trying to make a commentary about racism and having a racist show that doesn't include any black characters. <laughs> I think they did the right made the right decision. Um, so, you know, props to him for that one. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't just his decision. It sound, sounds like all the producers, everybody was involved. But yeah, I, I yeah. agree. So so the episode ends with her in this argument with Nick and she, they sort of are breaking up. Right. And he says something about like, you know, they could, they could kill you for this. And she says, at least someone will remember me. Someone will care when I'm gone. Um, And then she writes this, you know, you are not alone message on the wall. And this further underlines to me, the, the divergence of this character a little bit, right? Like, there is this sense of wanting to be remembered in the journal that we're reading, which is essentially what we're reading um, in the book, in the sense that I'm writing this journal and you're right now reading it, so you are going to remember me. So June does want to tell her story, but this is more about, like, I want to be remembered for my acts of rebellion. I want to make a difference in that way. And that is a subtle but significant divergence in the character that i think is going to lead to all sorts of different stuff down the road is my guess yeah i mean like i i don't want to comment too much but right. basically like i agree with you the this show has repeatedly shown that she's like that more defiant character that's going to and, and there keeps being these moments where she's sort of like walking in front of the handmaids and they're like playing a song and it's very like uh revolutionary it, yeah i think next episode or something she says like if they didn't want us to be an army they shouldn't have given us uniforms given and, us uniforms right yeah becomes very like it, it feels like a revolution is brewing yeah. big time and with her sort of at the head of it maybe maybe well at times um so another moment i have to say in the kitchen they're having their argument and this freaking light is coming in the window <laughs> i couldn't i kept yeah. noticing it after talking about it last week uh, let me hit you with a with a vocabulary term, numinous. I felt like the light was numinous. Um, it was it was evoking a divinity, um, and I, I kept thinking how these scenes like are being you know the light of the Lord is like shining in, yet it's through shutters and it's blocked and right. So is that like him? He's watching and doesn't agree with some of the things that are happening. I don't know, there? man. And then there's like a moment and there's like this moment later. It's I know it's not in this episode where Serena Joy is clutching the um, the pregnancy test and reacting. And she oh, yeah. is completely bathed in this light. And I'm like, in every room they're in, there's just these beams of light. There's no natural like they, they turn out all the actual lights and there's just the lights of the windows. Um, and then I, I, I can see them like, like throwing smoke in the air or something like how do they get these beams to look so crisp? I don't know. There's some sort of trick. Maybe it's something with a lens. It's probably all it is. But like it, there, there's like texture to this light in a way. Um, I even have I have a picture which I'm going to post on Instagram at some point. I, I literally stopped and took a picture, and it's, you know it's not the greatest quality because my phone, but like um, of just a scene. And I was like, this is one of those moments where you can like look at the composition of what goes into a scene, right? And it, it looks like a piece of art. It's amazing, and it's just the light and and the, and the actor. You know, it's a, it's pretty incredible. And her performance in that in that moment too. She's like like bowing down and like throwing her arms out yeah. and like doing all this like very. I don't know, religious, almost like she's like, uh, it's just this like plea, obviously, like this is the ultimate prayer that's like very evocative. 
but uh yeah i mean that this this show is definitely shot in a way that like all of this holy stuff that you're picking up on i i see that as well yeah, yeah for sure whether it's a commentary on it like they're actually being a god or they're you know what i mean like this there's there's at least the implication that religion is powerful within this society so i think that the lighting evokes like that sort of holy light like you're saying all right so episode nine is called the bridge Janine's daughter is handed over to Commander Putnam and his wife. Then Janine is transferred to another couple and renamed of Daniel. During the first ceremony night with her new commander, Janine forcefully stops the proceedings. At the market, Alma tells June that she is involved with Mayday and requests that June retrieve a package from the bar at Jezebel's. June convinces Waterford to take her to Jezebel's again that night. Waterford presents June with Moira, and June privately asks Moira to retrieve the package, but she refuses. The next day, June is taken to a bridge where Janine is standing on the edge with baby Charlotte, while many, including the Putnams, stand fearfully by. Janine shouts that Commander Putnam promised to leave his wife for her. June convinces Janine to give her Charlotte, but Janine then jumps into the icy water. Later, while Janine lies comatose in the hospital, Commander Putnam is led away by guards. Mrs. Putnam causes Serena to doubt her husband's loyalty. At the market, June is given a package by the butcher, sent by Moira from Jezebel's. At the brothel, Moira kills a client and takes his clothes and then drives off in his car. Right. So we didn't talk very much about Moira, how in the last episode, it's revealed that she is sort of defeated. Um, And uh, June has this discussion with her where it seems like she's trying to convince her, but she pushes back and is like, just, you know, you can't you can't keep doing these things. You're going to get yourself killed. Um, and, and it's not until this, this episode, I think when they have the follow-up conversation where she finally says to her, don't let them wear you down. Cause I wrote I, in my notes, I was like, she should tell her that quote, you know, like maybe that could be <laughs> important to her. And then I was just like getting my writer brain working because sure enough, she does in the next episode. And I was like, there you go. There's that quote. You got to bring it back. Um, and it was interesting that, it, you know, she ends up regaining her will to fight back. That's a change from what we get in the book, at least as far as we know in the book, because in the book, she sees her at Jezebel's, she's defeated, and that's the last time she ever sees her, right? There is no return to Jezebel's, I don't believe, in the book. So that that is fully added, this mission to go get this package, this has all been added. She doesn't do this for Mayday in the book. Um, Again, this is all an expansion and additional material, but I find it interesting, right? Like, I'm bought into the the story the show is telling. I'm not too beholden to what I read in the book. So I'm enjoying this. Um, Ufglen and her tragic tale, right? Like, she gets gets reassigned. Now, again, I I wish I I had a better memory for these details, but I think in the book there's an implication that they get to, like, retire or something after they have a baby, I don't there was some that. sort of reward and they were going to go in. they were going to, I think they go in this um, van, but I think they're supposedly taking them somewhere where they just get to like live in a retirement home or something. I, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the, what this like promise reward was, but I don't think that we know that they just get reassigned to another commander. Like I, I don't remember that being in the book. It totally makes sense. And I absolutely believe that the society would do that, especially if it's like, you're still fertile, you can still have babies. So they're going to do that. Um, but seeing it play out was heart wrenching. And then, um, oh, it was brutal. They make this character. So Janine, so like naive and childlike that you really do feel sorry for her and that she's been sort of duped into believing that the commander is going to actually come for her. And, 
Um, well, and she seems like uh, within all the handmaids that we've met, she seems like the one that needs to be taken care of the right. most. She's like, they keep having Ill, to talk clearly. her down when she's saying things, and she she had her eye gouged out yeah. for what you know before, like just for. I guess speaking out like that, right? Just acting out and like in the, in the yeah. red center or whatever originally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and then of course where that ends up going, um, the, the church, the, uh, the bridge scene and, um, off Glenn having a moment to save the baby. I definitely predicted she was going to jump in the river. I was like, she's, she's gone <laughs> and she does. But, um, I was then surprised when she was pulled out of the river and still alive in the hospital room. Um, that was that was a twist. So, what do you think of that? Do you th- would you have rather seen her die there? Would that have more of an and impact? I think this on was Jean? more interesting ultimately because I was expecting yeah. her to just die there. This was actually even more horrific, right? Like you can't escape. Even even in this attempt, she couldn't escape, and it make it makes it that much more horrifying. Like she she doesn't even have the ability to kill herself. So. The um, I think her name's Rita or she is a Rita. I, I'm not really sure The the character in the household has this interaction with Serena who wakes up in the middle of the night, wants to have a drink while they're gone. And they have this moment where they're chatting with each other and sharing whiskey. And and uh, this Rita character reveals that her son died in the war. And Serena, you know, says something about like his sacrifice and all this stuff. And it, it, it lends like some clarity as to why she is so obsessed with a baby actually coming into the world. Yeah. But it was interesting to me because I was like, what side was the son fighting for? It's not said, right? Like the implication mm-hmm. is maybe for Gilead, but it's not really said. So it could be anything. I don't know. And then just again, this was another moment where I was like, torn because i want to feel sorry for serena joy in some level but like she has done this to herself and it's so hard for me to find sympathy for her yeah i think that there will be people who find sympathy for her but it's hard for me too yeah. i will admit that it's really tough for she's me. a complicated um, character and like I, I there are moments where i want to like her but then she'll turn around and do something just so fucking heinous that it's really hard so and yeah yeah you mentioned Rita, and I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Amanda Bruegel because, like, sh- I thought she's—I think she's great as like a Martha in the house, and she plays this like double-sided thing. Okay, it's, so so the name of the they're Marthas, and her name is Rita. Okay, yeah. sorry, I, I again, I don't have a great head for some of these details, so I, I got those two things mixed up. The entire show, Rita the Martha, has been kind of like standoffish towards June, and like they start to warm up to each other a little bit more over time, um, but then you see that like she kind of holds some stuff back from Serena as well. Yeah. So she's still like kind of in the middle. Well, she let slip about he's about him not being home. And so at right. the end of the episode, we get Moira driving away and we're like, Oh shit, what's going to happen with that? But even maybe even more. Oh shit moment is Serena finds out what's been going on. And she goes, I think she pushes into his office at towards the end. And there's these moments of like, Oh, what's she going to do? Um, because she is quite an intimidating figure when she wants to be. And so it's, it was, I was really interested to see like, how does that come up against all the power that society has given to her husband? Right. Well, we're seeing like Putnam get taken away and shit too. Yeah, so like we end, know things which, are possible. We're about to like, get into, it, I want to talk all about, uh, yeah. all about that in episode 10. Yeah. Shout out to Amanda Bruegel because I love her also in kim's convenience she plays like this pastor or priest or something in in show movie it's great it's it's great it's a it's a sitcom about um 
a Korean family and they own this convenience store. And it's just like a really fun, light comedy. Oh, uh, Simu Liu from, from Shang-Chi. Oh. Is is the brother in that show? Oh, cool! And that was kind of his big start, and uh, and um, yeah, it's a, it's really fun. It's a I've really been, fun uh, show. But she's hilarious in that show. His TikToks are fun. He's the man. Seemingly, is the man. Uh, so episode ten is called Night. A flashback shows June's capture and indoctrination by Aunt Lydia at the Red Center. In the present, after discovering Commander Fred's trips to Jezebel's, Serena forces June to take a pregnancy test, which ends up being positive. Serena angrily accuses Fred, telling him that the child is not his. After learning the news, Nick and June have a tender moment. Serena takes June to see Hannah, but leaves her in the car. Serena warns June that Hannah will be safe as long as June's unborn child is. Following his show trial, Commander Putnam's left arm is amputated below the elbow. The package from Jezebel's contains letters from women who have lost family members and have been enslaved in the Gilead takeover. Later, an emotional Aunt Lydia gathers the handmaids and instructs them to stone Janine. The handmaids hesitate, and eventually June and the others refuse, dropping their stones. Following this, a black van comes for June, something the Waterfords were unaware of. Nick urges her to trust him and go with them. As June leaves, she whispers to Rita where to find the hidden letters. Meanwhile, Moira reaches Canada, is granted asylum, and is reunited with Luke. Okay, what an episode. Um, This is, you know, a lot of times you get sort of the big iconic episode at like episode eight or nine in a season. But like this is to me, this goes right up to episode 10. This is the big payoff of the season. And it it delivers on so many things. Um, But I got to go all the way back to the start with the flashback of her arrival at the Red Center and getting her ear tagged. And a horrific scene with this, like, uh, clearly used for cattle or something, ear-tagging device. And, you know, which is just used, it's just cruel, right? And, and it's mm-hmm. it's horrific. And then... And it's the first time that it's been, that June's seen it used yeah. immediately on her, like, almost right away. So it's, like... And, yeah, so, I mean, I'd noticed this tag elsewhere, but, like, getting the actual scene of it was, was definitely striking. Um, So, Aunt Lydia... There's been a few interesting moments throughout these episodes where it's clear that Aunt Lydia cares for the handmaids in a way. She seems to me to be a true believer in the cause. Like she is sort of wrapped up in her righteous belief and she truly believes in sacrifice and things like that. Like she she has that the danger of a true believer. Um and yet she feels some sort of weird kinship with them. I don't know. She, she much like in the leftovers and doubt plays a character that starts off as just completely reprehensible. And then you kind of get in- interested in, and you're like, what's going on here? Right. And I don't know if, if there's anything redeemable about Aunt Lydia, but like she rounded out the character in a way that I found fascinating. And, 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 and like there's, there's some actual human motivations beneath the surface she's not just a monster even though the thing she does is monstrous yeah they give her a couple moments to like really sit with some reaction shots and she almost has tears in her eyes sometimes when like and and you're like is this because she's so furious is this because she cares is it because she sees specifically at the end she see the humanity of all of these handmaids coming together to save one of their own or is she just like completely well, furious? Well, and, and I think the, the first moment I really took note of it was, I think, episode six, where all of the handmaids are lined up 
and Serena comes in and identifies the damaged ones and says they can't come right. in. And she, ha- I think, has tears in her eyes in this moment. And she's like, they that's are all equal in the eyes of the Lord. Like, that's not right. And she's like, yeah, but you don't put the bruised apple on top of the bunch. You can tell that, like, she genuinely is upset at well, the and implication then she, she says that like, they're she... less than because they've yeah. been injured in some way, which is a interesting distinction to make and it shows you how her head must work right well and she's doing the maiming exactly and she's like to her it's it's a it's a righteous thing and that it's not shameful and and that's in the way that serena is making it out to yep. be and she makes it she tells janine that she's going to give her like extra portions of yeah. ice cream or something or whatever and like that like shows that there's something there yeah. that you know yeah well because like they're there. finally going to get celebrated and it seems like she in some way believes that that is the like that they should be celebrated even though she fully like is the hand that keeps them subjugated it's really interesting i i don't know man like she's a completely reprehensible character but these little cracks of humanity are just fascinating to me um so let's move on to yeah let's move on to the next part serena slaps her so hard she slams her face into like a door frame um violent moment um and then she's just like screaming at her clearly she's like confused and bleeding and forces her to do this pregnancy test and again we're talking about the staging standing over her while she's like forcing her to pee on this thing and like um this is a reassertion of power from Serena joy to me and um she she is furious with her and blames her in this moment at least ostensibly for everything that's been going on with with her husband definitely yeah definitely she thinks that she like tempted yeah. he like was tempted away and then the 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 180 is the craziest part so she's pl- she, we talked about the praying with the pregnancy test on the ground with the hands and the light yeah. and everything and then it comes back positive and then the 180 flip she comes in and is like i'll be the nicest person in the world to you yeah so so bizarre and again shows that like she really wants a baby is the thing I kept coming back to. It's like Serena just really wants a baby. And I feel like that's what she's been. She's convinced herself that like, this is the way that she's going to get a baby. And she's every bit is out of her mind. Is that woman who showed up to steal the baby from the hospital? Honestly, I think it's because her character has now realized that if it was all for the fertility and the pregnancy and everything like that, then they have to have a child to make it all worth yeah. something. She has to be going through the things she's going through and she's going to feel better about herself if it means she did get to the point where she has a child versus living in the, the like, at least at some point she has a reward that right. comes out of all this pain that she's caused herself. Um, yeah. So yeah. But man, when she's filled with this righteous fury and she goes into the commander, like, I was, it's hard not to cheer for her a little bit in these moments because she, she comes right into his office and he's like, oh, hello, dear. What's going on? I've had a long day. And she's like, you know, she's at, or no, she's already in there. That's what it is. She's like talking about the game. She knows that he's lying. She calls him on his bullshit and he, he quotes the law to her and she's like, I helped write that law. (laughs) Like she's like asserting you know, like I, I have this power that, and, and like, don't you deny it to me? Um, and then of course she drops the bombshell, uh, when, uh, that, that, the, uh, you know, uh, that June is pregnant and yet she says, it's not yours. You could never father a baby. You're on, un- you're unworthy. God would never allow it or whatever. It's like some of the harshest shit I'm sure you could say to him. And then she leaves. And, and I, I think it's so important 
and it's such a good work being done by the show. They had to show that there are cracks in the armor for Fred for this scene to work because we have to realize that Fred is not all powerful and the way that he is shown to not be all powerful is what happens to that other commander. He is at the hearing. He wants to laugh it off. Oh, which of us hasn't made a little silly mistake? No big deal because he's being convicted for the same shit that he's been doing basically. And when that guy ends up losing his fucking hand and arm, um, well, and, and you have to also highlight the fact that the other commanders like turned on him. Like he was the one laughing, and all the other commanders were like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Like, well, especially that one guy who seems to be the real true believer. Yeah, who's the guy that like Nick Nick works for or something? Maybe. Yeah. And so he's like, "What are you talking about?" Like the, she she wants to push for the the harshest penalty or whatever. Well, and that's another and, key, right? It's the wife. It's the wife right. that does the husband in. And I think in that moment, he is recognizing, oh, shit, my wife does have power. And if and if this shit comes out and my wife is as cutthroat as uh, maybe uh, June said, which is, there was a brilliant moment where she says, you don't know her <laughs> about his own wife, which yeah. I thought was awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, I think he actually feels fear in this moment. Right. And that's why she can talk to him the way that she does, I think. And he can't do anything about it because he knows like she does have the ability to touch him in this way. Um, And that's really cleverly set up. Right. Because otherwise we wouldn't necessarily believe it. We're like, you know, he doesn't like you couldn't say this to him. But like the the show does a good job of setting up why she can. And and we see the we see Putnam's like what a fucking horror show that was. Right. It's just that like medical horror that is. And and anytime you're chopping off a limb, it's just oh. Well, it was surgical. It was surgical, and it's not like it needed to happen. And you're just like, oh, yeah, oh, completely fuck. healthy limb. You're just removing it, and the fucking blood squirting everywhere, and they got this fucking saw, yeah. and it's stuff of nightmares for sure. Um, but it also is such a distinct difference between this moment and what we saw with the um, cattle tagging, right? One was in yeah. a dirty room with a fucking, like, generator. Like, they were having to fuck with the power to get it even running, and it's like... Right. And then he's in this pristine surgical medical situation. He's sedated so that he's just going to wake up absent the arm, but he's not he's not experiencing the pain of it. Whereas, the, you know, the tag was just done. So, like, it even shows that, like, in punishment, how the different, you know, st- you know, genders are dealt with in this society and how even that's not fair. Yeah. One of the most powerful. And honestly, it comes back to that whole, like, um, it, if they didn't want us to form an army, they shouldn't have given us uniforms. All that stuff comes down to this package that's so important that she needs yeah. to get. I So I was like, are they going to show what this package is? Is it going to be kind of a uh, Pulp Fiction, like golden? Is it just a, is it a, uh, a MacGuffin of some kind that it's not really important what it is? She hints at it maybe being a bomb. And I was like, okay, they're going to go that route. Then I was surprised when she actually opens it. And I was like, all right, they got to make a decision here. What are they going to go with? And they go with it's full of letters. And I thought it was brilliant. It's it's not in the book. Um, this connects her to all these women all over Gilead who are struggling in her same situation. And it's that message she had of you are not alone is now being spoken back to her. And um, like a thousand times, a thousand times. It's powerful. And um, yeah, I, lo- I love that moment. I love that she passes the, the letters on to um to rita 
it's interesting that she trusts her, but maybe she doesn't have any any real uh, choice in the matter. Um, and and we'll, it'll be interesting to see if in season two they address that, like what happens with these letters or what happens with Mar- you know uh, Rita once she once she finds them. Very curious. Um, and so that all of them coming together, all the handmaids, like the power that they represent together, goes into the scene with the handmaids, and they're they're being asked to stone Janine. Yeah. Uh, what? Am, yeah. I I, I kind of. I guessed that this where that scene was going. I was like, she's going to drop the stone. She's going to be the first one. Um, it is what happens, but but it was great. You know, it was great. And then what an amazing looking scene! Just the red and then the swirling snow, and this 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 motif of red and white together just is continued on and put on display. And then like, ah, there's, there's there's a shot of all the handmaids walking away, and the snow's just swirling, and it's like in slow motion. And I was just like, God, this is just beautiful stuff. Yeah, it looks amazing. Um, I'm always a sucker for like the I'm Spartacus moment in like almost anything where like everyone is a group together, like uh, without saying anything decides yeah. like this is what we're going to do. And yeah, I'm, I'm just, sorry, Aunt Lydia. They they each say in turn, which is interesting because right. like they know there's going to be reprisals for this. And, and that's that said, like there will be there will be punishment. Um, and I love Janine's reaction too, when she like when everybody's walking away from her and she's just still there and she's like, I can't like she was like, uh, don't throw him too hard or whatever. Yeah, which is just heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing like, to say. Like yeah. what is one of the most heartbreaking things she can say? Again, she's so childlike, right? And then we get her reaction after they're walking away, having saved her, and she's like, you know, what's gonna happen? We don't know yeah, what's I mean, gonna she, happen. To I, her, so. you, you can't imagine it's gonna save her. Um yeah. so ultimately it's more about it's it's like a it's like a battle over their own souls, right? It's like you you can't force me to do this, um, and we I, I talked about it uh, early on in our show coverage, right? Like this making someone complicit in what's going on by by including them in some sort of ceremonial violence, um, and that's clearly what they've been doing. But here they push their hand too far, and they think you know she thinks that she can get them to do this. Um, and Aunt Lydia, I think, has shown just enough chinks in her armor to where we buy that maybe in this moment, you know, she doesn't, I don't know, like, have them all <laughs> maimed or something immediately, right? Specifically in that moment, their strength and, and unity and power, all of them say no together. Now, yeah, they could have all been gunned down, but ultimately, again, they have a certain role that has some power in the society they are the fertile women so you're not going to necessarily gun down a group of 30 of them like i assume that's a pretty big thing to do right and so nick comes in the middle of the night with the van and the implication is one of two things like either aunt lydia has sent which is kind of what's implied aunt lydia is like sent for them to go grab grab them or nick is like forming some sort of escape plan something like that but like yeah i guess he could just be saying don't it's not worth fighting over this the thing that like really amps up the scene is that Fred and Serena are like, what's going on? Hey, give her back, give her back. And they have no power in that moment. Yeah. And this machine is just taking the machine that they created is just taking right. away their baby basically right then. Yeah. There's definitely a big, th- uh, that, that is something the show keeps touching back on, right. Of like the society that they think they have control over. They don't actually have control over it. Nobody does. Right. Um, and there is a certain, you can look at these sort of situations where, it, these these societies tend to eat themselves, right? Like, it, and and no one is safe. No one is is necessarily exempt. Like, certain people are more likely to be exempt, but um, it, everybody suffers to an extent. What kind of a life is it if you're always looking over your yeah. shoulder? Like, that's how the society ter- what it ter- what it ultimately yeah. crumbles into. At some point, you could find yourself in the crosshairs of it, right? For just the yeah. smallest infraction. 
Um, but yeah, you're right. This is a, an interesting scene. And, and I do think the difference, I was touching on this earlier, but one of the biggest differences is Nick in the show, I think we trust more than Nick in the book. We know more about him for one. Um, their relationship is given more screen time. So when he tells her to get in the van, I trust him more. I, I want to think that this is, I don't know, maybe, maybe May Day in some fashion. Um, well, I guess I'll find out in season two because I, I definitely want to watch it. But um, it is a difference, right? So the show ostensibly ends in the same place as the book. Yet there is a subtle difference. And in, in I think it's more hopeful than necessarily the book was. Now, there isn't a bonus scene in the book where you're getting this like 150 years later and there's like a professor. If you haven't read the book, you're like, what the fuck? Um, who's like talking about the Gilead period and it's an academic breakdown of it. And it's talking about the distance and how, you know, societies might be doomed to repeat their mistakes and very interesting section of the book that obviously isn't present here. But as far as this part of the story is all this is all ostensibly similar at, here at the end. Um, one thing I, we have to talk about though is Moira arriving in Canada um, and getting sort of taken up in this refugee system. And she sees like stuff written on the walls about supporting refugees. She's, um, they're asking her if she has any family. She says no. And they're like, oh, well, you might be reassigned to another country. Um, but then, yeah, they're, he's like giving her, oh, here's your health care. Here's some food. Here's some money. Here's clothes. Like all the stuff she hasn't had. And she's in, she's just stunned. She's in shock. And we don't see her come out of it until later on when we see her um, interact with Luke again. And, and there's a really touching moment where she says, or he says, you're on my list. And she says, you know, my list of family. And he says, yes, or whatever. So like it's, it, she breaks down because she didn't know if he would consider her that, I think is the implication. And it's a really touching moment. And I, I want to highlight it because in our country right now, there is a big thing going on in Texas with Haitian refugees who are fleeing from their, I think their, their prime minister or president, I'm not sure the role, but was, was assassinated. And there's this big coup going on in their country. And then there was this earthquake. And so they're fleeing from horrific violence and just conditions that are unlivable for many people. And they're fleeing to America because America is this hope at a better life and a hope at, you know, being saved. And, I know this is a tricky subject. I know that the sheer number of people, ha like something has to be done with them. Like you can't, like there has to be infrastructure in place and there has to be rules about how this is done. But what we've been seeing, you know, and if you look on Twitter, it's like there's just horrific stuff happening. Like people getting chased down on from horseback, people getting whipped, people getting driven out. And um, it's just, it's horrifying and I, I couldn't help but think of it when I'm watching this and it's like this is a good reminder of what people are fleeing from. Once again, very complicated issue. Immigration has a lot of different things that you have to consider. But ultimately, I think at the heart of it, you have to show empathy and recognize the humanity of these people and recognize the situations they're fleeing. Um, yeah. And, you know... Being a refugee from a, a country that is oppressive, like this is basic human rights stuff. And I, I just think, we, you know, if we're the country that we like to believe we are, then we need to find a way to help these people. 
Um, what exactly that looks like, I don't know. And again, I'm not a politician. <laughs> it's just me reacting to some stuff I've seen online. But like this show, honestly, um, I, I think they're directly dealing with this, right? Because, you know, the treatment of refugees was an ongoing problem throughout all of the previous presidency and continues to be a problem here and what's going on in Texas. I think this is deliberately set up to put us in the shoes of a refugee because we feel for Moira here and we are so relieved that she has found this moment to uh, be saved, right? But like, um, that that's not possible for so many people, especially people who come to America, unfortunately. So yeah. Anyway, I just felt like we had to we had to touch on that sort of current event again. It's weird how it aligned. Well, it is great for perspective changing too. Like you said, like hopefully someone that doesn't necessarily feel that way about immigrants in general sees that and says like, oh, you know, people, yeah, humanity. Like, like there's there there like I know that people say like just, everyone's a person, but realistically, like put yourself in those shoes. Like think about it. Yeah everyone's you know everyone has a right to live yeah and 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 refugees are often fleeing just some unimaginable stuff and they're not just here on a whim despite what you might hear um yeah anyway um we have to make a final decision about which version of this story ultimately was best in our opinions for each of us um do you want to start Sure. Yeah. We are just judging first season here because I I don't have the rest of the show, so I'm not going to judge that. Right. Just first season. Just the first season. Yeah. So it's not easy for me, but it is clear, I think, to me, like and I may be biased because it's the first way that I saw it, but I prefer the TV show and the way that that everything plays out. I think it I think it took the opportunity to uh, address some of the things that we didn't necessarily love from the book. Um, it took some of the best details from the book and, and sort of extrapolated them out and then also just found its own story to tell. It sort of is telling a story of revolution in, in ways maybe or defiance against against like totalitarian regimes to see June become like this beacon of of like resistance almost as we as we're going towards this. I think that it's it's powerful for the time that it was coming out, especially season one and it, you know, I've talked about how like that it's come to rep- like the handmaid's uniform has come to represent a lot outside of outside of just the show. And um, yeah, it sticks with me. It's it's one of the best shows on TV. Um, this first season is incredible. It's really I think it's really well acted, performed, shot. We've talked about how amazing it looks. It's just the attention to details there, like in every facet um, and it's not to take away from what Margaret Atwood did with the novel because we, t- you know, a lot of the best parts ca- come straight. Um, I mean, realistically, the whole story comes from her. Uh, so props for that. But ultimately, I'm taking the show. The show is pretty incredible, honestly. Um, I, I've sort of raved about the look of it. The performances are memorable. Just, you know, honestly, it's a spectacular season of television. I really enjoyed watching it. Excited for season two. Um but when it comes down to measuring it against the novel by Atwood, Atwood's storytelling is really elegant and subtle, and she approaches the material with the ear of a poet and the sensibilities that she has to sort of approach this incredibly heart-wrenching, horrific material is such a unique perspective. And 
she created a book in the 80s that feels timeless and will continue to feel timeless as long as these sort of poisonous, repressive ideologies uh, are stick around, which, you know, maybe forever, unfortunately. Who knows? Um, and I think that's like a, a, a an incredible achievement as an author. And one of the things that you like many, many authors will never be able to even dream of, of, of pulling off. So for me, I got to give it to the book. Um, I think it is a different story in many ways in the show and self-contained. It has a deliberate purpose and a deliberate message and a sort of unity of vision um, throughout that makes a very powerful piece of literature that I think should be taught in classrooms. Um, it's incredible. And ultimately I do believe that this show is very important and the time in which it came out is very important. hundred years from now, 200 years from now, I think people are still going to be coming back to this book and maybe we'll see more adaptations of it down the road. But I think you got to go back to the source on this one. It's just so well made. So I'm going to give it to Atwood as my preference with the caveat of, I do really enjoy this show and I'm definitely going to check out season two. Um, maybe we'll talk about season two in like a bonus episode or something. Cause I'm going to be watching that one uh, for sure. Uh, yeah. I feel like we have to, because you know, to continue this journey, I think we need to, and so I don't hard fault to choose, you for man. taking Atwood. Yeah. It's, it feels, it feels dirty sometimes, yeah. but like, you know, typically when it ends up you picking the book and me picking the show or the movie, like I'm like, yeah, fi go figure. That feels right. Right. Like a split decision. I'm kind of glad you didn't also pick the book because I do think the show needs some love. Um, especially this first season. I really liked it. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. If you enjoyed this coverage, honestly, in general, let us know that way. Um, if you're on YouTube, leave us a comment. Um, whatever whatever platform you're on, find a way to uh, shout us out, tell a friend, all that good stuff. Um, we're not a very big podcast, we uh, so we definitely rely on word of mouth. So um, we would love it if you tell your friends, tell people you know who like The Handmaid's Tale about this coverage. Yeah, and if you'd like to support us another way, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. It's, it's definitely helped to keep the lights on here. Um, and we have many different tiers, but our $2 tier gives you our bonus episodes, which we put out one monthly. Uh, recently, we did NeverEnding Story 2, which was an experience. Um, and we, you know, we try to, we try to mix things up over there. We've done some video content as well, and we'll continue to, to do all kinds of stuff. Over and we there. mentioned that there is another Handmaid's Tale adaptation out there. I think in our last episode, there's a film, um, and I don't, it came out in the nineties. I want to say, uh, we might very well cover that as a bonus episode. So if you want to, if you want to catch that Patreon is where to go. If you wanted to connect with us, we're on social media at ink to film on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So next week we are getting to our 200th episode. Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of episodes of podcast. Uh, a lot of episodes talking about adaptations. We're going to take a week to reflect on that. Um, if you would like to get in your responses, uh, you know, where you let us know a favorite moment or favorite episode, please get those in basically as soon as possible because um, we record fairly early in the week. Um, so as soon as you hear this, if you're interested in participating, 
send it on over to inktofilm at gmail.com, or you can even just post it in a comment on one of our social medias or something. Just get it to us in some way. Um, and yeah, we want to include those. I think we're also going to play some games. We have some ideas about that. So hopefully there'll be some some surprises there for you. And yeah, it's going to be more relaxed fit kind of episode, but we hope you you celebrate with us. Um, truly, even if you just listened for the first episode or first project of ours, um, we consider you part of the part of our journey, and we'd love to have you uh, next week for that episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening for 199 episodes <laughs> and on to 200. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Keep adapting. Mm-hmm.